The last few chapters of the book of Numbers are all about the promised land of Canaan and how the Israelites are to live and remain in it once they settle there. Reflecting on life in the land seems like a most appropriate conclusion to the book because from the beginning, the book has had in view the people of Israel journeying to the land that the Lord promised to give them. It is my hope that our own journey through the book of Numbers will aid you in the years to come. It is my hope that even our study today will help you, dear Christian, as you prepare to one day live in the heavenly land that the Lord has promised you through Jesus Christ. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the end of Numbers. We're going to begin at Numbers chapter 33, verse 50. Numbers chapter 33, verse 50. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the beginning of the passage on page 142. 142. And while you're turning there, allow me to remind us of where we've been in the book of Numbers. Now you may recall from our study last week in the book of Numbers uh, that the, the first 49 verses of Numbers chapter 33 covered the length of Israel's journey from slavery in Egypt to the edge of the promised land of Canaan. From Numbers 33, we learned that even in the face of Israel's faithlessness, God has remained faithful. Where they grumbled, God was gracious. Where they complained, God was compassionate. Where they disobeyed, God disciplined them and led them to repentance. Wherever they were tested, whatever trial they faced, it was clear that God can be trusted. And if God can be trusted through the dangerous desert then he could be trusted through the conquest of Canaan. This is what the people of Israel needed to know as they prepared to enter Canaan. They needed to know this because the reality is they've been here before. The people of Israel have already made it to the edge of the promised land once before, but sadly Israel refused to enter. In fact, in, in an act of judgment and mercy, God told the people of Israel that everyone 20 years old and up would die in the wilderness over the next 40 years. while well, he raised up a new generation to receive his promises to enter the land. True to his word, 40 years passed, and once again the Lord led the new generation to the edge of the promised land. And we've been here on the edge of the promised land for several chapters in the book of Numbers, and all of these chapters in one way or another are preparing the people of Israel for entry into the promised land. Now, perhaps what is most striking about these final chapters in the book of Numbers is their tone. The Lord speaks a lot in these last few chapters. We're told that the Lord spoke no less than five times in these last four chapters. What is so striking about the Lord's speech is His determination. The people of Israel have been on the edge of the promised land before and they have turned around. But in these last few chapters, the Lord speaks as if to say, that's not going to happen again. This time you're going to go in. And when you do, this is how I want you to live. The Lord gives Israel practical instructions on life in the land. Isn't it kind of Him? Not only to give them order to go in, but to order their going in. They would not enter the land in a chaotic mess, but they would be given clear instructions on what life in the land is to look like. First, and perhaps most importantly, life in the land was to be marked by single-minded devotion to God. 
And this is the first thing that we see in these last few chapters of Numbers. And it's the first point of our sermon, an outline of which I think you can find in the bulletin. But this is the first point of our sermon. Life in the land is to be marked by devotion to God. Read Numbers chapter 33, verses 50 through 56 with me. Numbers 33, verses 50 to 56. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them who you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. I wonder if you heard or caught the devotion that the Lord is calling for in these verses. Notice in verse 50 uh, that we're told where the people of Israel are. They're in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Now, if you were to flip forward just a a few books in your Bibles to Joshua, to the book of Joshua, the book that chronicles the conquest of the land, then you would notice that the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho is basically where that book begins. And Israel's first main movement in the book is to cross the Jordan and to go and conquer Jericho. Now, notice what Moses is saying to Israel halfway through verse 51. When... You pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan. Do you see what the Lord's saying here? He's saying it's not a matter of if, but when. It's going to happen. God is determined to keep the promises that he made to Abraham centuries earlier. After all, we read in verse 53, you shall take possession of the land. And verse 54, you shall inherit the land. God is going to keep his promises to Abraham and his offspring, to give his offspring a good land in which to dwell. That's why he says in verse 53, I have given the land to you to possess. We have to remember a fundamental truth when thinking about what's going on here. The land belongs to God. That is why he can give it to one people and take it away from another. As the author of creation, he has authority to do with his land, with his creation, as he pleases. While the Lord is giving the land to Israel, what comes with it is an obligation or several obligations. When the people of Israel enter the land, then, verse 52, they are to drive out the inhabitants. How many inhabitants does verse 52 say they're to drive out? All. All of the inhabitants. But that's not all. They're also to destroy all their figured stones, destroy all their metal images, and demolish all their high places. No false worship, no idolatry, no idolaters are to remain in the land. The land is to be totally purged. 
And there are a few reasons for this. Though presently implied, the primary reason will become explicit in Numbers chapter 35, verse 34. The Lord intends to dwell in the midst of His people. And they are to have no other gods before Him. No other gods are to be in His presence. Israel is to be completely and totally devoted to the Lord. Israel is to remove all temptation from being led astray from the worship of the one true and living God. That means no idols, no idolaters, and no idolatrous places at which to worship. It is not enough to remove one of them. It is not enough to remove two of them. All three, all, must be demolished, destroyed, and dispossessed. And there are consequences for failing to obey the command of the Lord. Consider the way those consequences are described in verses 55 and 56. I cringe when I read these verses. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then those of them who you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. If the people of Israel do not fully obey the command of the Lord, then trouble and pain and judgment will come. It will be of an unbearable kind of trouble and pain and judgment. Do barbs in your eyes or thorns in your sides sound pleasant to you? Does that sound like a sustainable way of life? I mean, call me a wimp, but when I get pricked by a thorn from one of the rose bushes out front of my house, the first thing I do is pull it out. I, I can't stand it. And, and what about the Lord purposing to do to Israel what he has thought to do to the Canaanites? He would drive Israel out of the land that he gave them if they failed to obey. After all, it is his land. And those whom he entrusts to the land are but stewards and caretakers. He can give it, and he can take it away. The people of Israel are to live in single-minded devotion to God. They were to be the Lord's witnesses on that corner of the earth. The Lord was giving the people of Israel a good land for a good witness for the good of the nations. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we no longer gather on a corner of the globe somewhere. Instead, we scatter, establishing churches, or we can call them embassies of the kingdom of heaven. We live all over the globe, and where we live, we are to live lives of single-minded devotion to Christ our King. Our lives on earth should testify to the truth that there is but one only living and true God. There will be no idols in heaven, and while we are here on earth, we must work hard to remove the idols from our hearts. And brothers and sisters, let's be honest with ourselves. We've got idols in our hearts. The wise brother in Christ who once said that our hearts are idol factories did not say anything surprising. When pursuing the removal of sin and idols in our hearts, let us learn from the totality of the Lord's command. Remember that the Lord used that word all four times in Numbers 33, verse 52. All idolaters. All idols and all idolatrous places of worship were to be removed from among the people of Israel. We cannot, in good conscience, allow known sin and temptation to remain in our lives. Don't endanger yourself. Pull the barb 
pull the thorn out. And if you can't do it, ask another brother or sister in Christ to help you pull it out. Christian, remember that what the Lord has thought to do to you, he has already done to Jesus. He, Jesus, was exiled from the land of the living so that you might live in heaven. What shall we say then? Are we to continue on in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. We cannot let sin reign in our mortal bodies. With single-minded devotion, we must present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present our members to God as instruments of righteousness. While life in the land is to be marked by devotion to God, life in the land is due to God's generosity. That is certainly clear in Numbers chapter 34, verses 1 through 15. So let's turn now and consider our second point. Life in the land is due to God's generosity. And as we think about this, read the first two verses of Numbers chapter 34. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance. The land of Canaan as defined by its borders. The verses that follow, particularly verses 3 through 12, detail and describe the boundaries of the land in which the people of Israel uh, may settle and flourish. In verses 13 through 15 there, you'll notice that Moses is communicating this to the people of Israel, as well as reminding us of certain events that have already taken place in the book of Numbers. You may recall from our study of Numbers chapter 32 that the tribes of Reuben and Gad discovered that the land of Jazir and Gilead were great places for their livestock to live. And so they requested from Moses that they be allowed to live outside of the promised land of Canaan. Moses, he, he actually agreed to their request so long as they crossed the Jordan and fought in the conquest. You might also notice there that the half-tribe of Manasseh is mentioned at the end of verse 14. In Numbers chapter 32, verses 39 through 42, also records their desire for a portion of the land to be located on the other side of the Jordan. So thus, the, the half-tribe of Manasseh is mentioned here. One of the interesting things about the description and the definition of Israel's borders is that the people of Israel, at least in their Old Testament history, never fully occupied the land as it's described here. In other words, they didn't really fill out the land. Perhaps the Lord gave them more land that they could settle in. Or, or perhaps their disobedience and their later struggles with the people that they failed to dispossess in the promised land prevented them from fully securing the land that the Lord entrusted to their care. Whatever the case may be, the Lord at least initially gave them more than enough land for their needs. His generous. God generously held out and provided the people of Israel a good and generous inheritance. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God generously holds out to us the inheritance of heaven. So like those who walked before us, we too walk by faith. Life in the land came as a consequence of God's generosity. But it also came as a consequence of God's faithfulness. We're told in Numbers chapter 34 verses 1 through 15 that the Lord will generously give Israel the land. But who, who will inherit it? We're given the answer to that question in Numbers chapter 34 verses 16 to 34. So let's turn now and consider our next point. Life in the land is due to God's faithfulness. Life in the land is due to God's faithfulness. And as we do, read Numbers chapter 34, verses 16 to 19. 
Numbers 34, verses 16 to 19. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land to you for inheritance. Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. You shall take one chief from every tribe to divide the land for their inheritance. These are the names of the men of the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Jephunneh. Now let's just kind of stop right there. Uh, what follows is a long list of important and difficult to pronounce names. And we'll get to them in a moment. But we've, we've, given, we've just been given three really important names we need to stop and think about. Remember, what is going on is, is obvious in these verses. The Lord is, is entrusting these men, to these men, the responsibility to proportionally distribute to the, the land among the tribes. Remember we read earlier to a, a large tribe, give a large plot of land to a small tribe, a small plot of land. These men are, are entrusted with proportionally distributing the land. Eliezer, the priests, and Joshua are to take the chiefs of every tribe and assign their inheritance to them. And they begin with Caleb. Let's remember where all of these three men, or these three men emerged in the book of Numbers. And let's also remember why they emerged. Joshua and Caleb are often mentioned together because they were part of the 12 spies who initially went into Canaan to spy out the land. As you may recall, 10 spies brought to the people of Israel a bad report about the land. It was actually a bad report because it was faithless and false. It was faithless because those 10 men didn't believe that the Lord would go before them and fight for them as he promised. Caleb, he produced the minority report and Joshua joined him. They believed that the people of Israel could go into the land and take it because they believed in the Lord. Sadly, the people of Israel received and adopted the majority report concerning the land. And they rebelled against the Lord and refused to enter the land. The Lord actually threatens to disinherit the people of Israel. But Moses, as the mediator of God's people, interceded for them. Moses requested that God pardon and forgive Israel on the basis of his holy character for the glory of his name. The Lord did not wipe out Israel or inherit them. Moses' pleas for pardon prevailed. But as we learn in Numbers 14, that God's punishment of the rebellious people of Israel was not entirely averted. While Israel was given a reprieve, she was also given the earthly consequences of her sin. What were the consequences of Israel's sin? Death in the wilderness. The people of Israel actually said in Numbers chapter 14, verse 2, that they would have rather died in the wilderness. And so the Lord matched their punishment to their rash, foolish, and sin-filled words. The Lord gave that wicked generation their request, as all who were 20 years old and up, all but two of them, Joshua and Caleb, would die in the wilderness. The Lord caused the people of Israel to wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years until the whole generation died. And Eliezer's name in verse 17, reminds us that this has happened. Eliezer is the high priest because his father Aaron has died. These three names remind us of God's judgment upon the people of Israel as he promised, and yet they also remind us of God's mercy toward the people of Israel just as he promised. Listen, listen to these verses from, from Numbers chapter 14, and listen for God's judgment and his mercy. Numbers chapter 14, verses 30 and 31. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you have said would become prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. I don't know about you, but I love two things about those verses. 
First, I love that God promised to protect the little ones that the people of Israel were so worried about. The second thing I love about those verses is that God says, I will bring them in. He undertakes their protection. And he undertakes the fulfillment of his promise. His word is sure because he cannot fail. He is faithful. The list of names you see there stretching from verses 16 to 34 prove that he is faithful to bring those little ones in. That list contains the names of the little ones whom the Lord protected and brought through the dangerous desert. The Lord is faithful. And behind each of these men stood a whole tribe of little ones whom the Lord protected. The Lord is faithful. He was faithful in executing His judgment and He was faithful in extending His promises of mercy. It was only because the Lord was faithful that the people of Israel were brought into the land. Brothers and sisters, He who called you is faithful. You will make it home. You will inherit the land because He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. What He has pledged and promised, He will provide. Now, there was one tribe whose inheritance wasn't mentioned, and that was the tribe of Levi. We learn about their inheritance from Numbers chapter 35, verses 1 through 8. They have a unique inheritance, and that is because they have a unique purpose within the people of Israel. And that is to encourage the worship of God. So let's think more about this in our next point. Life in the, in the land is to be filled with worship. Life in the land is to be filled with worship. And now we're looking... Uh, let's just read Numbers 35, verses 1 through 3. Numbers 35, verses 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possession as cities for them to dwell in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to dwell in, and their pasture lands shall be for their, their cattle and for their livestock, and for all their beasts. We've seen God's faithfulness and generosity in giving the people of Israel a good and broad land in which to dwell, but here we also see God's generosity displayed in the volume of cities that He gives to the Levites. They're given 48 cities in all, as verse 7 makes clear. And we learn from the book of Joshua that these cities are located in some of the best locations in the land. In this description of the Levites' inheritance, we're reminded that the Levites aren't being given an allotment like the other tribes of the people of Israel. The Levites were to be scattered all throughout the land instead of being grouped in one particular area. The purpose of this was in part so that all of Israel could have contact with the Levites. And this was important because the Levites were to be the religious leaders in Israel. They would model what uh, obedience looked like to God. What, what obedience to God looked like. They would teach Israel the things of God and they would instruct them on the worship of God so that the land would be filled with true worshipers of God. This displays God's generosity to Israel in general as He put the Levites in close contact with everyone in Israel. God's generosity to the Levites is also seen in the fact that He not only gives them cities to live in, but He also gives them pasture lands. God generously gives them a source of food, but here's the thing. God has already given the Levites a source of food. In Numbers chapter 18 and in Joshua chapter 13 verse 14, we're told that the offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are part of the Levites' inheritance. 
The Levites were already being sustained through the choicest offerings and gifts that the people of Israel brought to the tabernacle for their worship of God. The Levites were entitled to a tithe, a tenth of those offerings. As the Levites continually served the Lord, the Lord would continually and generously provide for them through Israel's offerings. Do you see now how these additional pasture lands were an additional generous gift from the Lord? God was making sure in the generous gift of this land that his servants had plenty. God is gracious and worthy of our worship. As New Testament Christians, we know that God's great generosity, we know of God's great generosity toward us in Christ. God gave us every good gift that we possess. God gave us his son. He gave us his spirit. And God will give us an eternal home in heaven. That is the land that we will receive from him. Just like the Levites received cities in the promised land, we will receive a city in the promised land of heaven whose designer and builder is God, like we heard from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, early in the service. In response to God's grace and securing for us a heavenly city, we are called to worship Him with our whole hearts. Our lives are to be filled with the worship of God. Indeed, our very living is to be a continuous act of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. We... Christian, you and I are God's priests. We are God's Levites, scattered throughout the world, proclaiming with our lives and lips what it means and what it looks like to worship and follow the risen Christ. Isn't this what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9? He said this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. That's who the Levites were. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Here's what Peter says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, let's be prepared to minister to others around us. The Lord has strategically placed the Levites throughout the land to minister to others. And let's recognize that the Lord has strategically placed us as well. Dear friends and family, he's placed us near friends and family and co-workers who we need to talk to tell about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have within and let's give the answer that we have within so that the lives of others may be filled with worship too. Among the 48 cities the Lord gave the Levites were six special cities. They were called cities of refuge and they had a specific purpose in Israel's life. If you look at verse 6 there, Verse 6 says, the manslayer was permitted to flee to the city. What's going on with these six cities? Why mention them? Because life in the land is to be marked by justice. That's what we learn in our next point. Life in the land is to be marked by justice. That's what we learn uh, in Numbers chapter 35, verses 9 through 34. But let's just read from verse 9 to verse 15 to begin. Numbers 35, verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall elect cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The cities shall be for you a city, a, a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan 
and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. This portion concerning the distribution of the land, of the promised land, has a backstory. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 12 through 13, we learn, we're first told that those who accidentally kill another person are to go to the place that the Lord has appointed. As the scriptures unfold, it becomes clear that the Lord will provide a place in the promised land for these people. And, and, and they're known as cities of refuge. We see this here in, num- in Numbers 35. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 4, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, and Joshua 20. So, so the question is, how are these cities related to God's justice? To what God views as right and righteous? Well, the scenario that's in view there in verse 11 is that one man has accidentally killed another man. In other words, he did not kill him with malice or intent. The example that Deuteronomy 19 gives is of two men in the forest chopping wood. And one man's uh, axe head suddenly flies off. It strikes his friend and co-worker and kills him. It was a complete accident. The example that we're given in verse 23, if you notice down there, is that a man dropped a stone on someone without seeing them. Now, what would happen in those days when something like this happened is that the family of the man who was killed would get together and they would select a member of the family to go and seek revenge. And this man is the avenger of blood. His job was to go, pursue, and put to death the man who killed their relative. The city of refuge functioned as a place which guarded against injustice and vigilante justice. The man was innocent of murder and would be unjust for his life to be purposefully taken when he had not purposefully taken life. Numbers 35 does, however, delineate guidelines for judgment. It provides categories for deliberate murder and the accidental taking of life. Categories which the covenant community would use to determine how the case should be approached and decided. There was also the requirement of multiple witnesses to the crime. All of this aims at just justice. Murderers would not escape justice, but those who accidentally took life would be given refuge. These cities of refuge are a physical example of God's concern for human life. As many commentators have pointed out, God is concerned not only with the human life that has been lost, but also with the life of the man who has accidentally taken his fr- the life of his friend. But how do these cities of refuge display God's concern for, for the human life that has been lost? Well, these cities not only function as a place of safety for accidental manslaughter, but they also function as a place of banishment. If you look at verses 25 and 28 of Numbers 35, you'll see that the manslayer, though he has accidentally killed his friend and is innocent of murder, he is forced to stay in the city of refuge. Thus, he is held somewhat accountable for the loss of the life of his neighbor. Perhaps he should have lived and acted with more care. Perhaps he should have taken time to to ensure that the axe head was secure. Or perhaps he should have taken time to make sure that no one was below him where he dropped the boulder. He should have lived and labored in ways that considered the safety of others. Isn't that a good word for us too? Shouldn't we also be careful to consider others? 
I tell my kids all the time to take their, their toys downstairs. And you know what I did this past week? I found a toy upstairs, picked it up and just walked around the corner, tossed it down the stairs. And it bonked, it was small, but it bonked one of my boys on the head. And he scratched his head and he smiled, looked up and just kept running up the stairs. And I felt terrible and I should feel terrible because I wasn't taking into consideration who might be down there. Uh, we, we need to live in such ways that care for and consider the good of others. Uh, we could spin this application out in other ways. We, shouldn't, we should be careful not to throw tools down off of our roof when we're, we're, we're working up there. We should be careful with how we drive. Now we're getting serious, aren't we? Yeah, we, we need to live in ways that reflect God's concern and desire to protect human life. Because we bear his image and display something of his glory. Children, youth, young adults, this applies to you too. It comes into play not only with with how you interact with your siblings, how you physically deal with them, but how you think about them and how you think about others too. We need to remember that human beings, as human beings, we are made in the image of God, treasured by him. And so we need to treasure one another as well, living carefully to care for one another. Uh, Talk with your your parents or uh, a friend, a mature Christian, about how we can live life caring for others because we're made in God's image. What is interesting is that the manslayer, the man who accidentally killed another, is released from banishment only through the death of another. This time the death of the high priest. And there are practical reasons for this, but but still, is it not striking that death sent the man into the city, and it's only a death that can send him out? And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower and believer in Jesus, then I want to invite you to understand something about Jesus today. I want you to understand that it is his death as the high priest that sets sinners free. You see, you and I don't deserve God's generosity toward us in giving us life and breath. God has made us. He authored our lives, and as the author of our lives, He has the right to exercise His good authority over us. We've been made to worship Him, but instead we've we've worshipped ourselves. And just like Adam and Eve, we have all turned from God's commands. Instead of living God's way, we have lived our own way. And one of the ways this is seen in our lives is that we've murdered people in our hearts. Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, talks about how you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you. And then he goes on to talk about the anger that we have in our hearts. And Jesus says that is murder in your heart. You're guilty of murder. See, you and I are actually murderers. And we are worthy of being banished from God's presence in hell for all eternity and punished for our sins. But we can escape that judgment and banishment because Jesus Christ, the great high priest, has come and lived the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God. And he died on the cross bearing the punishment due to our sin, due to the sin of all of those who ever turned from their sin and placed their faith in him. But that is not all. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, not only died, but God raised him from the dead three days later, assuring us that we are free from sin and death, from the condemnation that is due to sin and death. And friend, Jesus calls you now to come to him, to turn from your sin, and to place your faith in him. 
to escape that eternal banishment and to live under his good care. Well, there are so many more details that we could plunge into concerning these cities of refuge. But I want to direct our attention to some fundamental matters about these cities. First, notice in verse 9 and 10 of Numbers 35, who is concerned to see these cities established? The Lord is the one who is concerned to see these cities established. And we see this is the case because he takes the initiative and he gives the commands for their establishment. The Lord is even concerned that everyone has access to justice. The recourse of, of the cities of refuge were to be available, not just to the people of Israel, but to all who lived in the land, including the stranger and the sojourner among them. They were to receive the same due process, the same protection that the Israelites received. Why? Because they were made in God's image too. We even see God's concern for access to his justice in the placement of the cities mentioned in verse 14. There were three cities on the west side of the Jordan and three cities on the east side of the Jordan. Six cities in all. In fact, from Joshua 20, when these cities are finally placed and located, we learn that on both sides of the Jordan there was a city of refuge in the north, a city of refuge in the south, and a city of refuge in the middle of the land. In this way, God's justice was to fill the land. There is more that we could fruitfully explore in reflecting on God's justice displayed in these cities of refuge, but for now, we need to consider how the book of Numbers closes. It closes with a concern about land being transferred from one tribe to another tribe due to marriage. At first, this seems like a strange place to conclude the book of Numbers. But I hope that upon deeper reflection, you'll agree that it's a most fitting conclusion. So our final point is this. Life in the land is to be permanent. Life in the land is to be permanent. As we begin to think about this, read Numbers chapter 36, verses 1 to 4. Numbers 36, verses 1 to 4. The heads of the father's houses, of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of the people of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the, before the chiefs, the heads of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel. They said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for inheritance by lot to the people of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. But if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance. As I said, Numbers closes with a concern about land being transferred from one tribe to another through marriage. If this was permitted, if this was allowed, this would cause tribes to lose portions of their inheritance. It could even encourage shrewd and conniving tribes to plot the accumulation of land through marriage, thus distorting God's plan for an equitable and proportional distribution. His distribution was meant to be permanent. The concern for inheritance being maintained within tribes and families was first raised by Zelophehad's daughters in Numbers chapters 26 and 27. You'll recall from our study of those chapters that these women displayed great faith in God. In Numbers 26 and 27, we saw these women standing on the edge of the promised land 
And they were essentially saying, we believe that God is going to keep His promises and bring us into the promised land. We believe that He's a faithful God and we are taking Him at His word. We believe that we're going into the promised land and when we get there and when we defeat the Lord's enemies, we want our Father's share. In faith, they were saying, we believe in our God and His promises. Let's go get our land. What does Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 say? It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. These women were convinced. They had the conviction that they were going to make it into the promised land. Not because of anything that they would do, but because of who God is and what He would do. Now the question that Numbers 36 raises is, how can their father's inheritance be permanently protected? They could possibly marry and their land could be transferred to another tribe. And the solution that the Lord provides for Zelophehad's daughters or any other young women who may be in their position is to marry within their family tribe. Obedience to this practice would permanently keep their inheritance within the family and tribe. Unsurprisingly, if you'll notice in verses 11 and 12, these women of faith obeyed. Isn't it appropriate that this is the way the book of Numbers ends? It ends with the reminder of Zelophehad's daughters and their faith. It ends reminding the people of Israel that they believed in God, His faithfulness and His promises to give Israel the land. It ends by underscoring their obedience to God's commands. And the last verse of the book ends with restating the fact that these were God's commands. Read, read Numbers chapter 36, verse 13. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. By ending the book in this way, the people of Israel were being implicitly called to do two things, to trust and to obey. Israel was being called to trust in God like Zelophehad's daughters had done. And they were being called to obey the commands of God. The book ends as if to say, Zelephah's daughters have trusted and obeyed the Lord. Will you? Will you trust and obey the Lord as you go into the land? And this is where we're going to conclude. Brothers and sisters, will you trust and obey the Lord? He is leading us through the wilderness of this world. And the turns that our lives sometimes take seem strange and out of place, and backward. And even in our pride, sometimes we think this turn is wrong. But they're not. The whole book of Numbers called the people of Israel over and over again to remember where they had come from. They had come from slavery in Egypt. The whole book of Numbers tells us that the people of Israel made it safely through the wilderness. And we know that the story doesn't end there. It doesn't end in the wilderness. They made it home. They made it to their desired destination. Brothers and sisters, you are going to make it home. The same God who said to the people of Israel, when you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, in Numbers chapter 33, verse 51, the same God who said to the people of Israel, when you enter the land of Canaan, in Numbers chapter 34, verse 2, the same God who said to the people of Israel, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, in Numbers chapter 35, verse 10, is the same God. He is the same God who will say to you, 
In the words of Matthew 25, 21, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So brothers and sisters, keep going. Keep trusting and keep obeying. You may feel as though you are wandering in the wilderness, but you are actually marching home to heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are our good and gracious guide. Oh Lord, forgive us for when we despise your hand and where you are leading us. Lord, we ask for stronger faith to trust you at each turn. Lord, we pray and ask that while we live and walk and wander on this earth, he would give us single-minded devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray and ask that you would cause us to remember your generosity to us in Christ and your faithfulness to us. Lord, give us hearts that are filled with worship. Lord, help us to live justly and to walk humbly before you. Help us to care for and protect those who are made in your image because they reflect something of your glory. And Lord, remind us that we have a home, a permanent home in heaven, which can never be taken from us because you will not allow it and you will deliver it. So Lord, help us to trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ each step of the way. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.